0: Social psychologists teach us that when it comes to rupture and repair in human relations, there are two types of cultures. There are cultures of forgiveness and cultures of reconciliation. And I take this from the writings of Joshua Berman. Cultures of forgiveness are usually cultures with a strong sense of the individual. The offense is unfair and unjust. It creates a debt To the one who is aggrieved. The apology of the offender allows the release of guilt. The apology pays off the debt and heals the insult and the injury. It allows for the aggrieved to achieve emotional closure. Where forgiveness is at a premium, the offender must do the work of accepting blame and committing to a new path, the path of recovery. Only by writing the self can the offender hope to write the relationship. There is a clarity in what has transpired, which opens the way for a redeemed future. The forgiveness offered by the aggrieved is an act of empathy with the contrition of the apologizing offender. This is how we look at it in our law. No one apologized when they were on the stand last week in the Rittenhouse trial. He never apologized. He just buckled down and There was no sense of remorse. There was no sense of apology of this individual. In contrast, cultures of reconciliation, not forgiveness, but reconciliation, tend to focus not on the individual, but on the collective. Who I am is entirely bound up with who we are. I, as a Jew, I'm offended as a Jew, not as an individual, when someone makes an anti-Semitic comment, let's say, in the army. The bonds we share, the common goals we aspire to as a culture, as an ethnic nation. So now when a relationship is ruptured, a premium is placed on re-emphasizing and re-achieving harmony with those around me. It's not about me, the individual, anymore. Here, the value is placed on letting go. Introspection by the offender and offers of apology are welcome, but they're not essential. Now, not all are able or willing to do that kind of work, that cultural work, and those cannot be preconditions for restoring harmony. The closer the dependence between the offender and the aggrieved, the more important it is to forego processes that we would call asking for forgiveness. And the greater the need for all parties to move to reconciliation. The deep cleansing of introspection and forgiveness may not even be achieved. It doesn't matter. So, cultures of forgiveness emphasize the peace within us. Cultures of reconciliation emphasize the peace between us. Cultures of forgiveness seek to clear the air about what transpired between the individuals. In cultures of reconciliation, the air about what exactly happened is clouded by the smoke of the peace pipe. <laughs> I love that expression. So, in our Pasha, we open up with Yaakov's preparations for meeting with Esau. And Jacob now is coming back to the land. Messengers are sent to him that Esau is coming with him and 400 men. 400 men. So, his brother is in the land of Seir. And he's coming to meet him. And so Yaakov has a panic attack and he splits the children, Leah and Rachel and the Shtei Shvachos, and he puts the Shvachos before and Leah afterwards and Rochel even in the furthest protection, Behu Avar name and he stands in front of them. And now he meets Esau, Va Yishtachu Sheva Pa'omim Ad Goshto Ad He bows seven times, as he comes closer to him, his brother, he's bowing, bowing, bowing seven times. Now they're in hugging distance. Now look at the verbs. Because last week we talked about the embrace and the kiss and the tears. Now look at the order this week. He embraced him. That's very different. And he falls on his neck. Why would you do that? What kind of an expression is that? To fall on one's neck. And he kissed him by and they cried. Again, the four verbs, that is the embrace. This is an individual embrace, which we will then transfer from a culture of the individual in the Bible to a culture of reconciliation in the collective of the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau. That's why I brought you Joshua Berman's framing narrative. Hugging, falling, kissing, and crying. The Ramban opens and cites a Midrash that we will come back to and says, to my mind, and I'm quoting the Ramban, this is an allusion to the fact that we were the original cause of our own downfall at the hands of rome o-m-g the ramban is looking at this this bowing seven times this act of reconciliation with esav who is hugging who who is falling on whose neck who is kissing who who is doing the crying and the ramban says For the Hasmonean kings of the Second Temple period made a treaty with Rome. Sefer HaChashmonaim is brought it down. And some of their representatives even went to Rome, as he says in Vayikra 26, 15. And this was ultimately the cause of their falling into their hands, as is recorded in the teaching of our sages and well-known in historical works. Ramban is using this as a proof text that what we did, Ramban's talking in 10th century, 11th century, Spain, looking at Sefer Yosipon, Josephus, first century, and the rabbis of the Talmud, and he is saying that that, in fact, is the cause for our downfall. Why? Because we made a deal with the children of Aesop. We made a deal with Rome. And he uses Chazal that criticizes Yaakov for initiating an encounter with Aesop instead of taking a detour. Don't go and meet him. They're coming to you with 400 men. Avoid it. Don't suck up to him. The encounter is described in our verse. And Rashi quotes the Sifri, and he kissed him. And let's just share with you the Medrish that Rashi is quoting. Hevi Rashi nakud al-Vayishokeh. Vayishokeh vayibku. So the Shla Kaddish quotes Rashi, and Rashi is quoting the Medrish. And the Medrish says, the word Vayishakehu is nakud. It's nakud. Remember, what we have... In the Chumish, when you're reading the Chumish, you're reading a composite from the 15th century. This is from the Codex Leningrad. So here is an original codex in the Leningrad Museum of the Hebrew Bible that goes back to 1008. Now, before Qumran, and we'll come back to that, before Qumran, we had no original witnesses to the Hebrew Bible. In 1948, when the Jews of Aleppo came to Israel, we found the Aleppo Codex, which is slightly later. We really only have three codices of what the original Bible text looks like. Not in your Sefer Torah, but an original, the earliest of the earliest, not a copy of a copy. And here it is. Vayichab Keihu, savorov Now look at the dots over Vayisho There's a dot over each particular letter so the medrash says why is it dotted and we know in Masecha Sofrim which a Mish- Mishnaic uh, text that tells us in 6.3 that there's a reason for the dots and Rashi quotes the Sifri the word Va'yishakehu is written with dots above it and there are opinions in the Bryce and the Sifri and they are divided as to their significance Rashi is telling us there's a big problem. And he tells us in Sifri, Yesh Shedorshu Nakudazu, there are those who explain the dots on Bayisha Kehu. It was a fake kiss. Yes, he kissed him, but he didn't kiss him with a full heart. So so, th- so now suddenly. The actual orthographic text of our Bible has within the text a midrash, meaning an expansion of the meaning beyond just what the text says. I don't know how he felt. Do you know how he felt? I know when I kiss someone, he doesn't know how I feel. That's hidden in me. The rabbis are telling us, according to the Sifri, early, which means Tanaitic. Yishokehu refers to the insincerity of the kiss. And Rashi, 12th century, is telling us that's if free. Omar Shimon Now, Rabbi Shimon by is giving us a couple of rules about these dots. We see these dots in 10 places in the Chumash. So, halokhohi. Biaduah Now, everybody knows... Halachahi, it's a transmission, it's a tradition. Everybody knows that the children of Esau, Edom, Christianity, hate the children of Jacob, the Jews. But I'm going to tell you that what these dots mean is exactly the opposite of the Sifri. He says, His mercy was aroused when he saw his brother after so many years, But Ba'osashav. He kissed him with all his heart. Now, wait a minute. You can't have it both ways. Either the dots tell us something about his emotional intention and his motivation that is positive or it's negative. It can't be both. Or can it? (laughs) That his kiss was uncharacteristic. He had genuine tender feelings towards his brother at that moment. And that's also cited in Tosfos HaSholim. Absolutely stunning, Rashi. And remember, we learned last week from Bechas Mordechai that when Rashi brings you both opposing views, you got to watch that. You have to understand that. According to Rabbi Shimon Bayachai, Asov is suddenly filled uncharacteristically with genuine emotion. Although he is advanced towards Yaakov with 400 men, and believe me, these are not Roshe yeshivas, but rather soldiers trained to fight, at the sight of Yaakov's family. And he says, who are these people? And Yaakov then introduces them. Close relatives locked in a perpetual bond. The sight of his family, he feels a sudden longing for home and family, and he kisses Yaakov wholeheartedly. Those are the dots above Vayishokeu, emphasizing that it was something that was done with a full heart. A person's attitude towards family members is rarely apathetic. He either loves them or hates them. We know a family's member's background, and therefore we develop specific expectations of them. And when they fail to materialize, it causes hatred and grudges. And here, these hatreds and grudges are completely dissolved in that moment of Vayishokehu. Now, other commentators, medievalists, to be sure, medievalist, to be sure, like the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra says, and he kissed him. The Midrashic interpretation concerning the dots on Kehu is good for them that are drawn from (laughs) breast. That's a put down by the Ibn Ezra. (laughs) They're they're self-delusional. Ibn Ezra, the medievalist, is only interested in the plain meaning of the text. So, he ignores the dots. It's obvious from the plain meaning that Esau did not intend to harm Jacob and the proof being of And they wept like Joseph did with his brethren. We're going to come back to, to the comparison between the weeping of Joseph and the weeping uh, of. But, so for the Ibn Ezra, he'll have, he'll have none of that. I want to share with you a brashit Rabbah that tells us more about this duplicit nature. And the brashit Rabbah tells us that the word V'noshcha, om Rabbi Shimon Bel-Alaza, Mechol Mokam HaTo'a rabba Raba is a rule about the number of dots versus the letters. In our pericope, V'yishokeyu, every letter has a dot. Now comes Rabbi Shimon Bel-Alaza and gives us a new rule, quoting Masecha Sofram. Bechol Mokam She'atomotze haktav. Rabba Alanakuda. Whenever you see more letters than dots, ata doresh et So you are to ignore the dots and only interpret the words. So in this case, if there were more letters than dots, you would say. Yep, it's genuine. But in Bay there's not more dots than letters or letters than dots. Ella? So then, milamich So now you have to choose between whether you go for the dots, which is disingenuous, or you go for the word itself, which is ingenious. So he says, well, milamich Yes, he's he was filled with with compassion, but now comes Rabbi Yanai, Amalo Rabbi Excuse me, sir. You just said the rule. That you have to Dorish the number of dots in Kane, Lama Nakudalov. So then why? What do we have the dots for? If you're telling me we should follow the word, then why do we need the dots? The dots tell us nothing. There's no ambiguity. Elonche lobolanashko. Elonoshko. Whoa. Do you see how he changed the kuf to a chaf? He didn't come to kiss him. He came to bite him. And how do I know that? Because Vayipol al Savarov, he fell onto his neck. Why would you fall onto someone's neck if not to disconnect the head from the neck, to bite it, to disconnect it with a sword or something? So he came to bite him. He falls on his neck to bite him. Those dots tell us it was definitely not disingenuous. Not only was it not disingenuous, but by the fact that he fell on his neck, he intended to do him harm. Not just that his heart was different. He intended to do violence, to actually kill him, to disconnect his carotid artery, to garrot him. nasa, and so how come he didn't succeed? The Midrash Rabbi Yanai says, Benasa, Tzabarosh, Yaakov, shayish. His neck became as hard as marble. The Kahu Shinov Rosha. Where do we see that expression? In the Haggadah, what does the Rosha say? what are you supposed to do? Hake Shinov, you gnash his teeth in the Haggadah. The same expression. The Kahu Shinov shall Rosha. And that Roshah, he broke his teeth on that marble. So then what does it mean? They cried. Remember, there are five verses. Vayichavku, they, they embraced. Vayishakehu, they kissed. Well, he didn't kiss, but he bit him. Then what's Vayivchu? They were crying. What are they crying about? Oh, Rabbi Abahu b'shem Rabbi Yochanan bin minhochot zavarech kemigdal Now, if you go to the Medrash Rabba in Shia Shirim, oh, what do we hear about that? Remember, the Beloved is telling us your, your, the beauty of your neck is like a tower of marble, Kamigdal HaShem, but the Midrash says something very, very dark. Alma Esav Arasha, eni ho rekes Yaakov I am not going to kill him with a keshet, with a bow and arrow. Elo b'fi. I'm going to kill him with my mouth and with my teeth, as it says, He didn't kiss him, but he bit him. And that becomes the paradigm of the cultural wars between Esauv and Yaakov. Why? We have two separate interpretations. We have Rabbi Shimon ben alaza that takes a very, shall we say, sympathetic view of Esau and thereby with Edom, and then comes under criticism of the Ramban. What are you going to Edom to make peace with them? What is this business? And the other is someone who had direct experience with third century Palestine, Rome, and Greek. In Palestine was Rabbi yanai who lived in Caesarea. He lived in Caesarea, and we learn from Shaul Lieberman that he was one of the colleagues and teachers, according to Lieberman, along with Rabbi Abahu of Oregon. Now, who was Oregon? Oregon was an interpreter, Christian interpreter of the Bible. So, if we want to read Oregon, we get a third century view of what the Christians in Caesarea down the road from Rabbi Yanna and Rabbi Abau were saying about the same text. Remember, they'd learned Hebrew from them. And Oregon says in the Hexapla, an anonymous remark on the verse with the following note in Greek. This is a translation from the Greek by Yesha Kehu is dotted in every Greek. Hebrew Bible, Pante in Greek. Not to indicate that it should not be read, but now fasten your seatbelts. We have a, some extra textual, extra Mishnaic, extra rabbinic source says, the wickedness of Esau is hinted by the Bible. He treacherously kissed Jacob. <laughs> Oregon rejects the alternative interpretation that the dotted letters should not be read, meaning that the dots were an indication of a doubtful reading. But he says that it should be interpreted the way Rabbi Yanai and Rabbi Abahu interpret. So what do the dots mean? Let's go to modern scholars. Shmayahu Talmon, the late Magnus Professor of Bible at Jerusalem's Hebrew University, argued that the dots, which are called special dots, in Latin, puncta, Extraordinaria, found in the Masoretic text, and in certain Qumran texts, you will see those dots. They had multiple uses. They were, for Talmon, a kind of nota bene, NB, calling special attention to a word or phrase. So the dots were a way for later scribes to call attention to something in the Torah that there's a problem with the text. Now, how can we say there's a problem with the text? Well, if I wouldn't have read this, I could not have told you about this. But if I bring this to your attention, you will have to agree with me that we have a text from Avot de Rabbi Natan. Now, Avot de Rabbi Natan is a Tanaitic text, and this will blow your mind. So, Avot de Rabbi Natan says, when Jacob came to pass Canaan, Esau says, I will not slay with bows and arrows. We learned that already from an earlier text. But with my mouth and with my teeth, I will slay him. Va'yishacheu, he bit him. But Jacob's neck became like ivory. Okay, I'm quoting from Hashirim, And now he says, Why is it punctuated with dots? my Ezra. Ezra says the following. Remember, he's coming back from Babylon to Eretz Yisrael. And he's reconstructing the text, our sacred text nakud, Kahoma Ezra. Inyovo Eliyahu, the if Eliyahu comes and says to me, "Excuse me, what's going on over here with this text? Why are you doing stuff like that? why did you put the dots on top of Vaishakehu? Kehu? Anilo, I will tell him. Alehem. I did that. I did that. It was me. I put the knots on it. The im oimeli you did a good thing by putting the knots. So if he tells me, hey, what are you doing with those damn dots? They're not meant to be there. Okay, I'll put them away. But if he says to me, yeah, you did good, because there's a problem with that word vayishokeu. So that is not some modern scholar telling us, uh, some kind of apicrosis about the transmission of the text, we know there was a problem with that word. And the dots on top of those 10 words in Tanakh, in, in the Chumish, represented a problem with the transmission of scribal texts. And so for Talmon, they had multiple uses. It was a not de bene. And it allowed for the rabbinic understanding that we need to interpret that word Not literally. It wasn't a literal kiss. It was a fake kiss, as it says in Seferi. And both Rabbi Yanai and Oregon say, we have to keep those dots because it tells us that the word should be in the Torah, shouldn't be cancelled. No cancel culture here, no woke culture of, of those 10 words. We should keep them there and we should interpret them. Comes along Emmanuel Tov a student uh, in in the same hebrew hebrew university and he says the opposite emmanuel tove says for the ancient scribes dots above letters were a sign indicating the problematic letters should be omitted so if you had fewer dots over those letters you take out the letters upon which the dots were to leave the others they originated in the conviction of a given scribe that a letter letters, words, or words were inappropriate or superfluous or incorrect. Or he may have adopted a piece of text when collating one manuscript tradition with another. Now, this is not just seen in the Bible. He brought texts, for instance, in the Iliad, where there are dots over the text. And they are called, in the scolion of the Iliad, there are Aristarchus marked certain verses with dots and then afterwards removed them, depending on the interpretation. So this was something that was done in the ancient Hellenic period, especially in Alexandria, as a scribal notation of doubt. Tove notes that of the 15 places in the Bible in which the Masoretic text is dotted, an alternative text without the dotted word is attested to in ancient Sources in seven or eight instances. So he went and found seven other instances in which the dotted word was missing. And that caused him to say that the cancellation dots, in fact, are undeniably ancient and reflect the well attested and ancient textual traditions for how scribes marked problematic words and letters. So we are left with two approaches. One that the dots are inclusive, and one the dots are erasive, and they are brought both in these texts of the Midrash. But coming back to a medieval interpreter, the Shloha Kaddosh, he now brings us back to our cultural dimension of Esau and Yaakov. And he tells us, he brings Rashi, quoting the different opinions for Vaishakehu. Some sages saying that they are to alert us to the insincerity of the kiss, and sometimes that his emotion was stirred. And he wants to tell us that that is actually going on archetypally. Asov isn't Asov, and Yaakov is not Yaakov. What is going on down here is going on upstairs. And upstairs, who is Asov? Asov is the Sitra Achra, it's the summer ale, it's the dark forces of the divine. And sometimes their emotions are stirred, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they are considered to be genuine upstairs and sometimes not. Which implies, and that's the whole avoider he tells us on Yom Kippur, is to convince the Abishter, to convince God that the kitrub that the, compl- that the complaint of the Samael uh, should not be taken seriously because it's not genuine. This brings us to, of course, the last level that we're talking about, that we are now going to internalize everything that we were discussing. And that is to bring us to a couple of Hasidic masters. Rabbi Huda Arie Leib Alter, the Sfas Emes, tells us that Jacob is endowed with the capacity to draw out the good in people, transforming them and bringing them closer to God. As one who can see the light in the darkness, Yaakov Avinu had the potential to reveal the goodness even in Aesop. and he failed to do so in this particular meeting, and was punished and taken to task. So, for the Sfas Emes, looking at a historical, just the way the Ramban does, carrying on that trajectory of the Ramban, we are being punished by being subjugated to Christianity and Rome because we tried for the Ramban, to make a deal with them. And for the Sfas Emes, we failed to be makarev of them, to see the, da- the light in their darkness. Now, my wife's grandfather, the Nitziv, and someone on the opposite end of the spectrum in the 19th century, the Meshiloach, both point to the potential good in Asov. very uncharacteristically. For the Nitziv, Asov excelled in Kibbutz Av, the big day Hamudos. He had a a, a, a cupboard every time he came to visit Yitzchak, and he would put on uh, these these big-day to show his greatness in Kibbutz of Aeim, as opposed to Yaakov. And both for the Ishbits and the, the Nitziv, they point out the potential good of Esau. According to the Hamikdova, the spark of authentic good was apparent for this moment in Kehu. He ignores the dots. He sees in Bayishokeu Nimkuru Rachamov. His mercy was aroused. And he genuinely embraced Jacob as they both wept genuinely. And he goes on, because only the Natsiv could do this, the first to talk about the sweep of Jewish history. He and Rabtadekar Cohen were the first to talk about Jewish history as a kind of sweep. Uh, the way Hegel looked at it, right? The winds of the 19th century understanding of history changed. So the Nitzv goes on to maintain that this relationship is foreshadowed as a future relationship. And he says, to quote, There are moments in history when Asov's offspring awaken to acknowledge Israel's destiny. I'm thinking of the Balfour Declaration. <laughs> then we too come to recognize Asov as our brother. Just Rabbi Yehuda Hanossi loved Antoninus. In a similar vein, the Hashiloach Reb Mordechai Yosef Leiner of Ishbit, says that Isaac loved Esav and desired to bless him because he understood that given Esav's exceptional qualities, his strength and his passion, were he to have become refined, he uses that word birur, refined, he could have been greater even than Jacob, and that he takes from the Zohar. In the Kabbalistic literature, we are told that Asov comes from a very high place, from the Olam of Tohu, not from the Olam of Tikkun that Yaakov came from. And that when all history is refined, then he will achieve back his rightful place the way B'nai Korach did, etc. Now I want to end with the Shem Mishmu. And the Shem Mishmu picks up on the world Vaishokehu and he looks at the dots, and he then has a very interesting question take on the medrash. The medrash said his neck became like what type of mineral? Marble. Really, marble. And so he's picking up on marble. the Why not metal? That's a hard thing. Make his iron, steel. What's this business about marble? kasher. Everywhere else in medrash, if you want to say a metaphor for something hard, what do you say? Barazel, nekoshes, copper, iron. <laughs> and he brings the, the whole proof text. So now he comes into his wonderful, wonderful internalized understanding of Yaakov and Aesov. Yaakov isn't Yaakov, Aesov isn't Aesov. Everything's occurring, not like the shlop, Hakolosh says, upstairs, but now we've internalized these archetypes. So within me, there's a Yaakov. And within me, there is someone who wants to betray and wants to destroy me, my own inner demons, my wounds, my past. And in a very psychological way, he's going to, it sounds very frum, but I think it's a deep psychological insight. What's it going to be? At the end of the day, you have to choose. How do you say (laughs) Are you going to say it was genuine? Or are you going to say it was not only disingenuous, he came to bite him? Uh, What am I going to say about my inner demons? How do I deal with my inner demons? So he says, well, anytime, and that's what we learned last week about Rashi, you have to try and see it's not either or, it's paradoxically both. Okay, so how do you fit that? It's not possible. So when Jacob says to God, before he meets up that night, Hatsileini midei achi mide he picks up on that wonderful expression. That's miyutar, it's redundant. Just say, please save me from Esau, or save me from my brother. Why save me from my brother from the hand of Esau? min And he says something profound that goes back to this constant business and the Ramban's criticism of us sucking up to Rome. He says, don't suck up. He says, I was more afraid of my dveikuso. I'm more afraid of his genuine kiss than I am afraid of his bite. Why? Because, Because, because if I go to Rome and I negotiate, then what's going to happen to me? I'm going to see Rome and the Pantheon. I'm going to see the Senate and I'm going to be introduced to all. And what's going to happen to me? I'm going to be sucked into that culture. And yes, okay, of course, I'm afraid of the sword. Of course, I'm afraid of the sword. So what he's trying to say is that I have to understand both the dots and the interpretation of the dots. I have to hold both together. On the one hand, yes, I have to be saved from the sword, but even more so, I have to be saved from his culture. That's what he's saying. And so then the question comes, why the marble neck? Why the marble neck? So he says, vessels made from stone and marble are not mekabaltumah. Just brilliant. Who would have thought? Why did it become, he kissed me or he bit me on my neck? Why couldn't it have been barzel and Nechoshes? Because barzel and Nechoshes are mekabaltumah. So had he bitten me here, I would have been mekabaltumah. I would have become defiled from that cultural kiss of death, the love bite of Aesop. It could have been that it was genuine. Come, join my culture. It really is superior to yours. We have the Western canon, we have Shakespeare, we have Homer, we have William Blake, we have the whole Harold Bloom list of 32 epitomes of Western canon, right? There's no greater psychologist than Shakespeare. There's no greater interpreter of Genesis than Milton. Come, come! <laughs> but given this, the Shem Mishmul says the Medrash chose the symbolism of marble than the usual hard materials of iron or brass. Yaakov's neck was unable to contract any impurity from Esau's malicious advances. He was impervious to Esau's designs and marble, which is unable to receive tumor, is a perfect metaphor for this. So we come back to our series of the tears by Yivchu and they cried. And the medrash tells us this one cried because he tried to bite him. He tried now to inculcate culture into him with that kiss. Whether it was genuine or not genuine doesn't matter, but it was a kiss of cultural death. And what is Esau crying about? He's crying that his teeth that his teeth were hake Eshinov, that his teeth were in fact gnashed by the refusal of Jacob to receive that blessing. And so I leave you with this thought that the tears of Jacob when meeting Esau are paradoxical tears. And the tears that we have to shed as we grieve our past, our wounds, as we go through the grieving process as we age, for me, it's the harm I've done to others and the amends I need to make to others and to myself for the harms I did to myself in my life. We have to bring compassion. I think that that's what's coming through between the two midrashim. How to look at that Asov? I trust him, but I don't trust him. I accept his genuineness, but at the same time, I have to. Respond to the fact that he won't allow me my own integrity to be me with my own voice and my own narrative. He wants me to be the Rosh Hashiva. He wants me to be this goddle. He wants me to be something I'm not. So I have to bring compassion to that, those past wounds. And I bless you all to understand that in the tears that have to be shed as you grieve those past wounds, that we come to the healing for all of us. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.